In this commentary, I'm going to talk about evolutionary psychology, the topic of Morganum's chapter 19. It's a good idea to read through the note uh, that I've given you at the top of the outline. There are a couple of things a little bit different about this uh, particular set of comments. Evolutionary psychology is a topic throughout the Haidt textbook, and I'm not going to say uh, anything uh, particularly additional from Haidt's point of view, Haidt is obviously a very positive uh, advocate of ideas from evolutionary psychology. But Mogadam's views are far more skeptical. I think a good exercise for you uh, in the coming weeks is to take uh, Mogadam's criticisms of evolutionary psychology and put them up against uh, Haidt's claims with respect to evolutionary psychology, all of the things he says about the sources of behavior and evolution, and see if uh, you can see any justification uh, in the way that uh, Haidt speaks or that uh, Mogadam speaks, or is it uh, a bit of uh, both and they need to be placed in some sort of balance between them. One of the first things I'll emphasize is that Mogadam gives a very good uh, brief description of the basic principles of the theory of evolution. It's on page 299, there's six principles, and it's important you get those down uh, Pat, if I asked you on an exam, for instance, uh, about the theory of evolution, what it is and why it's important in our study of psychology, the what it is part is those six uh, tenets on page 299. The why it's important part, uh, I'll talk a bit about uh, here, and uh, but it's also throughout the Haidt book, as I was mentioning before. One thing to note about the evolutionary psychology is it puts a strong bias towards or it's consistent with uh, reductionist uh, causal model of human behavior. There's an attempt to take uh, human behavior, but also emotions. That's actually the stronger thing with Haidt. He talks a lot about uh, human emotion. And to reduce that emotion or behavior or cognition uh, to some biological uh, explanation. So seeking causes. Uh, there's an inheritance um, of biological characteristics that determine psychological functioning. So this is the causal uh, model. The normative science approach puts far more emphasis on the meaning system, the interpretations that people make. The emphasis I think that's appropriate is the one on adaptation. Evolution has a sense of adaptation. It's one of the tenets that uh, people, through the evolution of their biological characteristics, adapt uh, better or, in some cases, worse uh, to their environment. But the same thing can be said with respect to cultural uh, adaptation. Uh, some ideas make us better adapted uh, to our environment. Uh, others might weaken our adaptation. But I'd like uh, an emphasis on adaptation. I think that's a good place to put it but I think it needs to balance the biological and the uh, psychological or cultural uh, aspects as explanations of behavior. In previous comments, I was talking about uh, the importance of animal research uh, in psychology, and I mentioned there uh, the idea that once we see a sense of continuity between animals and humans, that it makes sense uh, to go back and look for elements of human behavior in animals. 
uh, elements in the sense of SR connections, uh, the way the behaviorist uh, did, uh, for example. And I also uh, talked about the work of the ethologist who took up and improved on the earlier ideas of instincts that uh, were carried over from animals into humans. Uh, Mogunam mentions the idea that we talked about earlier that uh, using animals uh, involves us in a little bit uh, simpler uh, ethical situations. And in many cases, uh, animals are a more abundant uh, resource uh, to work with than uh, humans. He also mentions the uh, SR connections uh, idea and the fact that they can be studied in animals just as easily as with humans. One of the earliest uh, forms of study of evolutionary psychology was in the study of instincts. Okay, one thing I wanted to mention, the notion of instinct. You should have in your mind how instinct is an evolutionary uh, idea. The idea that some behavior may be instinctual is to say that that behavior is built in. And it must have evolved, it must have been useful uh, to the survival of the species at some point uh, in order for it to have been selected and maintained. Then you could ask the question, well, are there instinctual behaviors in humans, things that they do purely on the basis of biology? If certain stimulus situations, they respond in certain ways. An example of something in uh, you might go back uh, when I was talking about uh, William James. I read off uh, some things about instincts. Remember, I gave a list, and one of them, uh, somebody suggested that uh, one of the instincts was uh, hunting. The humans had an instinct uh, to hunt, and that maybe that instinct was fading in modern times. Well, this was a hundred years ago. People were talking this way, and that illustration, the idea that people might think that hunting was an instinct, suggests that uh, we confound things which do typically happen. Like, a hundred years ago, many people did go hunting. But just because it happens a lot doesn't mean that it's built into our biological system. It could be a cultural uh, phenomenon, or even a necessity. In uh, earlier times, it was necessary to go out hunting for your food. You couldn't Today we come for it in supermarkets. Uh, we need uh, in the same way. But just because something, a behavior occurs regularly, doesn't mean that it's built into the biological system. It could be a culturally based uh, quality. And hunting would be a good example of that. If the culture uh, facilitates, encourages uh, hunting, and it's learned uh, from a very young age, perhaps but it's not built into the biology. Today, a kind of instinctual thing that people might talk about would be territoriality. The idea of uh, creating a territory. We know how uh, you can see on the, uh, in the National Geographic uh, documentaries, on the Discovery Channel, you can see animals out marking their territory, typically by urinating on the boundaries of the territory would be a way to do it. Well, do humans do anything of the sort? Probably not marking territory by urinating in uh, particular places. But do they have a sense of their home as a territory and defending that home? Is there something instinctual about uh, this sort of uh, this sort of thing? 
Again, it's not easy to tell. I mean, how would you decide whether it's biological or cultural? And this is one of the themes running through the course of the whole. Many of the things that psychologists look at trying to decide if nature or nurture that's influencing uh, the behavior. Today, rather than talk about instinct, we'd be more likely to talk about uh, the things that uh, Lorenz uh, was dealing with in the animal work, imprinting, for instance, as a uh, fixed action pattern. Certain releasing stimuli in the environment leads to a fixed action pattern, something very rigid, it's automatic, uh, and we can look at it. So I mentioned last time uh, a goose in a, in a nest. If there's an egg-like object near the nest, it's going to pull that back in. It's a, it's a fixed action pattern. The uh, movement is a releasing stimulus for uh, following behavior in the new hatched uh, geese. So this would be the contemporary aspect. But we can look at these in animal behavior and ask, is there anything like this in human behavior? Uh, have we evolved in any similar uh, fashion? When we talk about uh, generalizing from animal work, it's not just a matter of looking for instinct or uh, imprinting or fixed action patterns and so forth. We can look for other kinds of things. For instance, um, attachment is uh, something we, Mulgram has a whole chapter on attachment, and it's mentioned in some of the other uh, places in both of the books. We can look at that as possibly something that's built in. Are the mechanisms for attachment built in? Is there something about humans? We've evolved in ways that cuteness, as we find in, in infants, is attractive. We're inclined, you know, we see cuteness and we just automatically want to cuddle and look after and care for uh, things that look uh, cute. Is that a built-in thing that is a basis for attachment? And is the behavior of the infants, uh, some of uh, the, the physical stuff uh, is not under control, but the infant can cry, uh, give distress signals when left alone. Is that something built into infants as a way of, as a basis for attachment uh, behavior? Uh, Richards talks about other kinds of uh, things in animal behavior. He says, Maybe something of what we see in humans is like what happens with uh, animals. So, for instance, he says the uh, a bird that finds a worm and brings it back as a courting ritual, brings a worm and presents it to uh, a potential mate. He says, "Well, is that that instinctual behavior that's part of the mating ritual, the fixed action pattern in birds?" is when a guy goes and buys some flowers and chocolate and brings that to a woman, is that a similar kind of thing? Is, is there something built in? You would just say, not my boyfriend, no. Uh, nothing built into him that does anything like that. Um, again, it's cultural or biological. Is there a connection between the two? This is the kind of thing that evolutionary psychologists are interested in. It's whether there are uh, patterns of these sort that still uh, exist in humans. One of the examples that Richards gives is he says uh, walruses 
as part of their mating ritual. Uh, the males bellow. They stand up on the rocks and they make the noises. You know, uh, and the one that's got the best noise attracts the most females and, uh, and so forth. He says, well, maybe that's what politicians are doing. When the politicians <laughs> get up there and give these speeches, it's really, you know, and they're just attracting, uh, trying to attract mates and uh, so forth. This is the kind of thing. Is there an evolutionary connection between the animal behavior, the instinctual things we find there? Are there remnants or aspects of that in human behavior? Uh, I think you have to read... Richards and Morgan uh, closely uh, because it may not be obvious on the surface, but both of them are highly skeptical about evolutionary psychology. Neither of them thinks this is the answer to psychology's questions, but they both recognize that there's a huge interest in evolutionary psychology. There's a big movement in that direction. It's part of the uh, movement of psychology towards the biological in general, but lots of interest in the evolutionary ideas. Uh, some of you may have noticed at the end of our lectures on Monday and Wednesday, uh, there's another class comes in, and the instructor of that class often stops, and he knows the psychology class, he's been kind of listening outside the door waiting for us to finish. He often asks me questions, and he's really interested, almost always his questions are about evolutionary psychology. He's really keen on it. This is something that's captured the imagination of many people. And I'll just show you uh, some examples of why. They're the ones I was talking about uh, last time. Let me just mention a couple of other things uh, first, though. Uh, so where I'm talking here on the outline, I want to move to this general topic, genes as the causes of behavior. And what I'm going to tell you, these examples are here, the ones I mentioned on attraction and language. But let me just deal with these first two concepts first, inclusive fitness and social Darwinism. Um, The notion of inclusive fitness, uh, Richards mentions it specifically at page 209. Mogadam mentions a similar idea without using the term, uh, page 302 in Mogadam. The notion of uh, evolution, we went through those six basic ideas of evolution uh, last time. Part of the idea is that if an organism is born with a characteristic that increases the likelihood of their survival to reproduction age, then that characteristic through the genes that determine it can be passed on to the children and it can spread in the population. So we say that these characteristics that increase the likelihood of surviving uh, to reproductive age and actually reproducing. We say they're fit, they're, they're good fit for the environment. So we talk about the fitness of a particular genetic mutation. Some mutations are bad. Uh, they decrease the likelihood of surviving uh, to reproductive age. But the ones that, in, some mutations increase the likelihood of survival, we say those are particularly fit to the environment. So we're interested in the fitness of a particular genetic uh, mutation or a particular characteristic in that. Now the notion of inclusive fitness says 
says, well, it's not just a matter of fitness to the environment for that particular individual, but it's fitness to the environment for that individual and others who carry that same uh, gene through relationships. So uh, a particular characteristic might assist my survival, but also would be interesting my brother's survival, my son's survival, my uncle's survival, and so forth. So taking a more inclusive notion of fitness, not just about a single individual survival, but the survival of related individuals who carry the same or related uh, genes. So you get a discussion in Mulganum about altruism, because how this works is say, all right, well, I might do something that comes at great sacrifice, perhaps the sacrifice of my own life. And you say, oh, well, that's very altruistic. You know, when we talk about heroes, you know, they gave their, their life. From an inclusive fitness point of view, people say, well, does that, is it the case that that happens more often when the people for whom you're giving your life are closely related to you? then it makes sense. You're not giving your life in a heroic way. You're giving your life to protect your genes, to make it more likely. So Morgan gives the example of uh, a couple uh, with a couple of children. They're on a boat that's sinking. They get to the lifeboats. There's only space for two people left. They put their children into the lifeboat rather than themselves. Morgan says this is an example of an evolutionary psychologist who interpret this as the survival of uh, the genes rather than the survival of the adults. It's the survival of the genes that matters. And so putting the children there makes sense because they will be able then to survive and reproduce and the genes will carry on. Whereas they themselves are uh, less likely to reproduce again in the future. So it makes more sense from an inclusive fitness point of view that uh, they would save their children rather than themselves. So this characteristic of altruism may have evolved, that characteristic may have evolved as a way of protecting the genes, enhancing the likelihood of inclusive, uh, enhancing the likelihood of survival of the genes through a process of inclusive fitness. Social Darwinism uh, is not really Darwin's idea at all. It's taking Darwin's idea and applying it in a social situation. And a man named Spencer is the person who's most associated with this idea. And it's mentioned on several different uh, pages in uh, both Morgan and Richards. And this idea says, it talks about, it takes the notion of fitness and the notion of survival of the fittest and puts it in a social dimension. So it says, for instance, Life is a competition. It's a struggle to survive. Not, not physically survive, but to survive to get ahead in the society. And the people who get ahead in the society are the most fit. So if you have a, if you start off in a career, you make a lot of money uh, struggling, then you are, that's a sign of fitness. You, you're well adapted to your social environment. 
And from an evolutionary or social Darwin point of view, that's a good thing. It is a competition. People who have the fitness should survive. And the people who don't, well, that should we shouldn't worry about that. We should just, you know, leave them, you know. We want to improve the quality of the race. Now, I think you can see from a social justice point of view some problems with this. It says, well, the rich are rich because they're fit. The poor, well, don't worry about it. I mean, they're the, they're the unfit. And so let, it, let that go, and let's, let's work with the rich. So that's the social Darwin notion. It's a struggle. The rewards go to the people who are the fittest, and that's the way it should be. It's, it's built in uh, to our system. Now, Morgan and Richards and not very many other people today uh, are happy about this notion. Uh, Spencer lived over 100 years ago. Uh, there was very much this idea, but there's been a lot of arguments uh, around political uh, support, social support uh, for issues like poverty. We read the Costco and Flynn article talked about uh, homelessness, which is a aspect of poverty. Should we just simply ignore these people, leave them alone because they're not fit, and uh, let biology and the environment take its uh, turn out as it, as it does? Or should we seek to support uh, these people? And that would come, the support would come from, this is more a nurture kind of thing. It's not built in by our nature. And in fact, uh, we need a more socially just system that would allow everybody to thrive and reach their potential, and so forth. So this is the social Darwinism notion, and so again, what, uh, I have to caution you, uh, when I talk about social Darwinism, I'm not advocating it, I'm saying this is an idea that uh, many people have developed. Um, okay, uh, gender differences. The reason I have that here is because... Uh, Evolutionary psychology frequently is used to talk about and explain, to describe and explain differences between men and women. You say, these differences between men and women have they evolved? Did they serve some purpose? Or did they serve some purpose at some time? So I asked you at the end of last lecture to have a look at the, the links here. So we'll take a quick look at them now. I'm just going to scroll down to the bottom. Uh, of this outline, and I have a paragraph from an article which, if you follow the link, you can read the whole article. Okay, so this is um, an article in the in the Globe uh, about this time about two years ago. It's talking about uh, men and women talking to each other and the problems they have. Why do men and women react to talk the way they do? It's all about gender differences. A good way to think of it is to go back to the Kalahari. Kalahari is a desert uh, area, in uh, a plains area in uh, Africa. So he's saying go back to primitive times, thousands of years ago, when humans were just getting started in Africa. It wasn't really to women's advantage to be running or hunting or killing because they had the equivalent of a 20-pound bowling ball in one arm. In other words, her child. So they gathered in groups for safety, and they developed their language skills. 
the male role was to provide and protect. What they became very good at is hyper-focus, really concentrating and developing muscle mass. Testosterone actually kills off some of the brain cells having to do with languaging emotion, with speaking emotion. Not feeling it, but languaging it. All right, this is a kind of typical example of the extreme ideas of evolutionary psychology being used to explain gender differences. Again, I'm not, I don't encourage you to believe this. I think it's, I think it's false, personally. But many people, I, I can't quite say that because many people think this is well worth uh, examining the real possibilities. But the notion is that we look at the evolution of the species. So we go back in earlier times when the species was, species was still evolving. Humans were just becoming human, uh, developing their characteristics. And we see what would have led to survival and what would have worked against survival. The idea here is, okay, it would make some sense to think that because women are looking after the children, they can't go and do these things that men do. They gather around together, and in that context, they develop an ability to speak about emotions that men don't do because they're out busy hunting and uh, killing uh, things and bringing it back. Uh, got the bowling ball under their arm. Now, I mean, I think there's just a hundred problems with this notion, but I think you can see the implicit logic. Maybe things happen and the survival, people organize themselves in particular ways in order to survive, and that made a difference in the kinds of skills that they developed. Well, still could all be cultural, and you know, why did they, why, why say that, uh, okay, the woman's gonna have to give birth, but why does the woman have to be the one to carry the bowling ball uh, around? It could be, the man could do it just as easily, in some societies, are there different societies? Does it always work this way? Anthropologists would want to look and say, how have different societies been organized? Do they all do it in this uh, same way? And is it really the case that emotion is irrelevant to hunting uh, lions and elephants and uh, wolves and so forth? Is it irrelevant to that? So men have no reason to talk about their emotion? Uh, it seems like a really interdisciplinary yeah, and that's that's the interesting aspect of it. It is interdisciplinary. It does require bringing together lots of different aspects of psychology. The main criticism that Logan and Richards point out is how would you test something like this? There's, it's all speculative. You can't go back and really set up an experiment to see how this uh, might work. So, Logan and Richards are cautious, they say, you know, this kind of thing, I mean, this is not an example from them, this kind of thing, they say, is an would be an example of the kind of creativity that you might apply in this area. Uh, you think about what primitive human conditions might have been like, and uh, you can use your imagination to create a lot of different ideas about this, but you've got no way of uh, testing it. Now, as Claude's saying, you know, maybe you can bring some anthropologists into this who know how to go and collect fossils and uh, pottery and, uh, from ancient civilizations and work some things out. But uh, 
it's it's a speculative uh, area of psychology, very hard to make conclusions uh, about these things. Uh, the other example, so that's you can read that whole article by clicking on the link. That's the link on language. The link on attraction has to do with the idea that another difference that some people speculate has evolved to differentiate men and women is that uh, men, when looking for a mate, are interested in, uh, in good looks. They want an attractive uh, mate. Uh, women, on the other hand, less interested, less concerned about the attraction, more interested in the resources and ability to protect and uh, provide for uh, the family. The link here is to a very clever study uh, based on the idea of speed dating. And what they did was they brought uh, people together in a speed dating arrangement. Uh, they asked people to, so you know in a speed dating situation, uh, you move from one person to another, you spend a short period of time with each of several different people, have a chance to chat with them about well, really whatever it whatever you'd like, and then you can make some judgment whether you'd like to see them again and get to know them better or not. You don't have to see the ones that you weren't interested in, but you, can, you indicate your interest in seeing others, and if that matches up, if they're also interested in you again, fine, everything goes off. So they did the experiment this way. They got the people, and uh, they got ratings of how good-looking the various people were. They got ratings about resources of the people, how well off they were and uh, how able they would be to provide for the future. They uh, got people to indicate whether they would like to see each other again or not. Uh, and at that point, they found that the results seemed to follow what I was just describing. The man indicated uh, they would like to see certain women, and when you looked at the ratings they had given for how attractive the different women were, ones they wanted to see again were the ones that they had rated as very attractive. Women, on the other hand, asked, who would you like to see again? <laughs> Followed this uh, example that I gave. Uh, and they said they'd like to see these people for whom they had given ratings, not necessarily high on good looks, but higher on resources. Uh, so that's they said they wanted to see those people. All right, now if it had just been left there, it would have turned out we support this general idea that people have talked about. But what they did was they followed up and saw who did they actually contact afterward. Who did they actually make arrangements with uh, to meet up with? And what it turned out was the men made arrangements to meet people, women whom they had rated as good looking, and so did the women. The women made arrangements to meet with guys that they had rated as good looking. So they didn't follow what they had said when they reported who they were interested in. What they did was different. They did exactly the same thing the men did. So it suggests that in reality, in behavior, men and women are both interested in attractive mates. But what we say, what we self-report, isn't necessarily the same thing. We report more in line with the, the sort of the cultural stereotype of uh, what our interests are. Well, you can read the details of that. It's a newspaper article describing uh, how the uh, study worked and uh, you can look up the actual study. It should remind you of the personality test idea, can we trust self-reports? Uh, but it's also relevant to the evolution idea because we have this idea that men and women may have evolved 
to have these differences, but maybe it's not even true, those differences that we said. Maybe a careful, more careful look would show us uh, that those differences are not so great as uh, we had imagined. Much of what we're looking at in evolutionary psychology, other psychologists would say is learned. It has a cultural base. And things, and those things are based in meaning systems, values, and beliefs, rather than in biology. Mulgadam gives you the example of aggression and says, all right, people talk about how men in particular have evolved to be aggressive. And certainly it's hard to discount that totally because we look at uh, aggressive crimes, we look at war, it's always men uh, that are involved for the major part. But on the other hand, uh, the idea that we're aggressive against those who are different from us and friendly to those who are the same as us, Mogadam says if we look at the wars that have been had and who are the allies, often the allies are formed more on the basis of ideology, political ideology, rather than on the basis of uh, similarity in physical characteristics. So evolutionary psychology is a place where there's a lot of interest, there's a lot of possibilities, but there's also a lot of what we might call scientistic think theorizing. Scientistic as opposed to scientific. Scientific, we've talked a lot about what science is, but scientific is thinking that looks like science, but is not. Fails on the major characteristics of actual science. So it's like... Uh, on the TV commercials, when they get somebody to dress up in a lab coat uh, and endorse a product, that scientific kind of thing is trying to give the impression of science, where in fact there's no science uh, line behind it at all. It's not very good science. So this is a place uh, where that's the case, and also I mentioned before the idea it's, it's difficult to collect data in evolutionary psychology.